Well, tonight I'm going to talk about something that is not real exciting. I don't really enjoy it, but you know what? It needs to be done. It's kind of like eating your vegetables, broccoli or something, you know, and it's good for you, but you don't, it's not dessert. And um, anyway, I've been teaching on Christian philosophy for those of you who were not here. It says in Philipp- uh, Colossians chapter two, verse eight, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of man, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. And I've been talking about philosophy as a way of thinking. We discussed this. Then we went over to Genesis chapter three and we talked about what is a Christian philosophy. And we showed how that if Eve would have had this philosophy that, you know what, God's word is absolute. I will not question it. I will not debate it. If God said it, that settles it. Then the temptation never would have gained any traction with her. So that's the first philosophy we talked about. We talked about how that you need to make a philosophy that there's only one God and you aren't him. So it's not up to you to run your life. In the New Testament, we say, just make Jesus Lord, turn everything over to him and let him call the shots. And if his word says that you do things this way, then do it that way. If God says, don't do this, don't do it. You just aren't smart enough to figure everything out on your own. And that's really offensive to a lot of people. That is not a philosophy that most Americans embrace because we're free and I can do whatever. Well, how's that working for you? (laughs) I tell you what, I spend my time talking to person after person after person whose life is messed up because they did it their way, them and Frank Sinatra. (laughs) I don't know exactly what hell's going to be like and I don't know about Frank Sinatra. I'm not sitting here passing judgment on him, but by all appearances, unless something happened at the last moment that we aren't aware of, that guy wasn't born again and he didn't go to heaven. And I don't know what hell's going to be like, but I think part of it could be having his song. I did it my way, play over and over and over 24 hours a day, man, that would be torment. That's what gets you into the mess that you're in. And, um, so anyway, we talked about that you need to make Jesus Lord. And then we talked about how you need to have a philosophy that God's a good God. Adam and Eve didn't truly know God the way that you and I can know God. And that comes as a startling statement to some people because they think, well, they were sinless and they walked with God in the cool of the evening, but they didn't know that God would send Jesus, that God would become a man, that he loved them so much he would die for them and that he would take all of the sin and the punishment that they deserved upon himself. They didn't know that. We actually know God better because of history and what God has done in the word of God and how it's revealed to us. We can know God better and more intimately than Adam and Eve knew. Eve bought a lie that God told them not to eat of the tree because he didn't want them to be like him that he was holding something back. They believed a lie that God was not a good God and that he didn't have their best interest at heart. And if you enter into sin, let's say for instance, that you go out and you just, you know, shack up with anybody and don't follow the moral code. You know what? You think that God is a spoiled sport and he's trying to stop you. I guarantee you the reason God told you to love one person for life is because that's what he made you for and that's what satisfies you. And how many times have you been hurt by the way that you've chosen to live? If you go out and live in dope and drugs and stuff like this, people think God's trying to restrain me and hold me back. Well, yeah, he's trying to keep you from getting sick and 
puking your guts out and doing things and killing people while you're drunk and destroying your health and all of this stuff and getting addicted to drugs. I mean, that's God's really bad, isn't he, for trying to keep you from all of that. The reason God tells you to do stuff is because God is a good God. And you just need to have this philosophy that God is for you, not against you. And if he told you to do something, there's a reason why. You may not understand it. Your little peanut brain may not figure it out, but I can guarantee you, you can go through the word and see things time and time again. You know, Charlie was mentioning tonight that he did a lot of those weird things that I didn't do. And um, some people think that you just can't learn anything except by hard knocks. You've got to experience it. Well, I didn't go through hardly any of the things that most people did. I've never said a word of profanity in all of my 63 years. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've lived a super, super holy life. And people think, well, then you just can't learn anything. Well, I can learn it through scripture. That's the reason it's in there. I can read about David. He committed adultery and boy, it was awesome, wasn't it? Wasn't it great about what he was able to do? His child died because of it. His own children killed each other. Absalom killed Amnon and then Absalom tried to kill him and Adoniah rebelled and tried to kill him and Solomon. And boy, that was just great fun, all of this adultery. And you know what? I don't have to experience it myself. I can live vicariously through the Bible and learn these things. I don't have to, I can read the scripture about a person that gets drunk as like a person who lays down on top of a flagpole, (laughs) amen, and you are going to fall. It is just imperative. And, And who is the one who has sorrow? Who is it that has grief? He that tarries too long at the wine. And I've learned these things through the word of God. You do not have to learn everything by hard knocks. I have learned that God loves me and he put these stories in there so that through them I might learn not to commit adultery and not to blaspheme and not to do these things. You do not have to go out and experience everything on your own. What would it be like if we didn't receive the knowledge of generations in front of us and if everybody in here had to start like a caveman and go invent fire on your own and come up with the wheel on your own and do everything. You didn't have a computer. You didn't have a cell phone. You didn't have anything. Didn't have air conditioning. And everybody just had to start over and let's all invent it and find out for ourselves. Man, you aren't going to go very far. You need to go to the word of God and take the instruction and learn from what other people have done. And you can be way down the road and miles and miles and miles ahead of the people who decided that they'd do it their way. So anyway, these are the things we talked about this morning. I talked about evolution and showed from scripture that evolution in any form, any form, whether you call it theistic evolution, there's many different theories of evolution, but any form of evolution is not compatible with the Bible. The Bible teaches a literal six day creation and all of this stuff that's been fed us is not accurate. Even scientists are coming out against it. There's over 10,000 scientists who've signed a paper to come out against evolution, not on the basis of faith, and religion, but on the basis of fact, it does not hold water. It doesn't work. So anyway, we talked about that. Tonight, I want to talk about uh, homosexuality and abortion. And like I said, this isn't my favorite thing, but you know what? We need to have a Christian perspective, a Christian philosophy. And if Christians don't speak out on this and teach from the word of God, who's going to do it? I guarantee you, Planned Parenthood is not going to tell you the things that I'm telling you here tonight. And so you need 
to uh, receive this. And like I said, it's not my favorite thing. But let me start with a passage of scripture over here in Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus chapter 19. I got to find it. I know it's in here someplace. Leviticus chapter 19 and in verse 17, it says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Jesus actually quoted from this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 22 when they came and said, which is the greatest of all of the commandments? I think it's Matthew 22, 36 through 40. And he says, the first is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he quoted from this passage of scripture. But look at the context of it. He's still talking about love. In verse 17, thou shalt not hate thy neighbor in thine heart, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. And then it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. Did you know it is love to tell a person the truth? It's the truth that sets people free. And this says, don't hate your neighbor in your heart, but you shall in any wise, you know what that means? Under any circumstances, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the fallout from it, if you truly love people, you're going to tell them the truth and not suffer sin upon them. You know, I live in Colorado and we have a mountain pass that I have to drive up to get to my house. And there's these twisty, turny roads. And this has been a number of years back, but I was driving and it was real foggy. The speed limit is uh, 55 or 60 along there. And uh, I was going along and, and it was foggy. It was hard to see very far, but a car passed me going at least 60 miles an hour. And he got just barely in front of me and we were on a curve and I saw his brake lights come on and then his car just jerked violently to the right. So I slammed on my brakes and I came to rest on the uh, shoulder of the road right next to his car. And he had hit a horse that was in the road. And this horse hit right in the driver's side and just caved in. And it was right on top of him. And he was, he was like right here next to me. And I was sitting right here looking at this guy and he was bleeding from it. And as I was sitting there trying to assess this and realize what had happened, a suburban came around the corner and that horse was, uh, his legs were facing the car as it came and this suburban was going 60 miles an hour and these this horse's legs were out and that suburban went up the legs of this horse and just decapitated that horse right here at the head we never did find the head of this horse it was just gone and this suburban hit that and launched it in the air and it went at least 10 or 12 feet in the air and then it went probably from here to that wall 20 30 feet in the air and it hit this woman's head actually poked through the roof. You could see a a dome in the roof where her head went up in this roof and she was able to control the car and stop it. I went up and checked on her and she was hurt, but she was okay. I mean, she wasn't uh, bleeding or anything, but she probably hurt her spine. And so anyway, the situation was that here were both lanes of this 
road blocked on a mountain road with fog, people going 60 miles an hour. And I knew that if something didn't happen, there was just going to be person after person after person coming around that corner and having a wreck and pile up because you couldn't see. And so, you know what I did? I went back around the corner and it was at night. It was dark. People driving 60 miles an hour. And I started jumping out in front of cars. And man, they would see me at the last minute because it was foggy and they would stop and they would swerve and people were swerving over the road. People honked their horn. I heard some ungodly things said about me. Man, people got mad. People were yelling and all kinds of stuff. But you know what? When they got around the corner, they understood what I was doing. And you can whitewash this any way you want to. But if I would have said, but I could scare some people. I could offend some people. Some people might get mad at me if I jump out in front of them. What are people going to think of me? And if I hadn't have done that because of how I might have offended people, you can whitewash it any way you want to, but I didn't love those people. I would love myself and I would rather sit there and watch people get killed and damaged to themselves, damaged to their vehicles because I just didn't want to take the criticism. You know what that is? That is a very descriptive picture of how the average Christian takes a stand on morality. They don't want to be offended. They don't want people to reject them. They don't want the criticism. They don't want somebody to say something. And so you know what's right and wrong. The Holy Spirit has shown you, but you just, we whitewash it and say it all kinds of different ways. But the bottom line is we love ourselves. We hate our neighbor. We are willing to let people go headlong into sin because they may not understand. They might misjudge our intentions and criticize us for it. And so I offer this to you as I start talking about homosexuality and abortion. I'm not against anybody. I love everybody. And it's because I love people that I'm telling you the truth of what the word says. I believe God's a good God. And if God says something is wrong, he did it because he knows what's right and what's wrong. He made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. God knows what it is. It satisfies you and how you're supposed to act. And he did these things because he loves you. And I'm saying these things because I love you. And I am not going to hate you if you disagree with me. I pray that you won't hate me. You know, homosexuals and people that are pro-life or pro-abortion will sit there and preach, you ought to be tolerant, you're bigots and you're intolerant. And yet they are the most intolerant people on the face of the earth. I mean, they won't tolerate anybody who disagrees with them. I tolerate people that are homosexuals. I've had people on my staff who are homosexuals. I did not fire them. I dealt with them. They've gotten over it. They're still staffed with me. We've had people in our Bible college who are homosexuals, transvestites. We had one guy that I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. And you know what? We loved him. We didn't kick him out. People treated him good. We aren't against anybody. But I don't proclaim that that is an acceptable lifestyle. It is a destructive lifestyle. And you cannot look at scripture and become indifferent on this issue of homosexuality. Let me just share some scriptures with you about homosexuality. Let's start in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. You should be close. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. 
their blood shall be upon them. How clear do you have to get? Homosexuality is an abomination. And in the Old Testament, you were to kill those people. Let me just say this, that there is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't believe anybody ought to kill a homosexual. I don't think you ought to be mean to homosexuals. I don't think you ought to be bad towards them. Homosexuality is a sin, just like adultery, just like lying, stealing, idolatry, and on and on. But it can all be forgiven. Acts chapter 13, I believe it's verse 38, 39. It says that under this new covenant, we are purged from all things from which we could not be purged under the first covenant. There is a difference since Jesus came. God placed all of our judgment upon Jesus and God loves the homosexual. He does not want us killing homosexuals. I used this yesterday. I'm not going to go back through all of it, but it said that if your children rebelled, that you were supposed to stone them to death. But the reason for that was because you couldn't be saved in the Old Testament. If you went far enough to allow demons into you, it was like having a cancer and you couldn't cure it. There wasn't a cure for sin under the Old Covenant. The only thing you could do is basically scare the devil out of people with punishment. And if you do this, I'm going to judge you. And if a person went to the place that they allowed demons in, you couldn't be delivered of demons. And any person who has committed homosexual acts has allowed demonic activity in their life. Under the old covenant, you could not be delivered from that. Under the new covenant, you can. And so you don't kill a homosexual. I am not promoting hating homosexuals and killing homosexuals. Amen. And the Bible, even though in the Old Testament that was a judgment, it was similar to the way we treat cancer. If before there's a cure, they don't have a cure for it. You cut out parts of the body and you give radiation. If there was a cure for cancer, you wouldn't ever cut off part of your body. You'd just take the cure. Well, now we have a cure for homosexuality. We have a cure for these things. And so it is not New Testament doctrine to kill a homosexual, to hate them. Okay. I am not against homosexuals. I'm against homosexuality because it's sin and it's destructive. The same as murder is destructive or lying or stealing or on and on you could go. Adultery and fornication and all kinds of things. But there is a forgiveness and there is an antidote for all of those kind of things. Amen. So you need to understand these scriptures in the light of the New Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17. And let me just say that the Bible doesn't mince any words about this. Amen. I'm just reading scripture to you. But Deuteronomy chapter 13. And in verse uh, 17. Here's what the Bible says. And there's, uh, let's see, am I in the right place? Deuteronomy 23, no wonder. Deuteronomy 13 didn't seem to go along with that. It's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17. I'll eventually get there. There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite. A sodomite is a person who's a homosexual based on the name Sodom and Gomorrah. A sodomite of the sons of Israel. Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow. For 
Even both of these are abomination unto the Lord thy God. The scripture here calls a sodomite a dog. And that's not necessarily meant to degenerate them. It's just talking about that this is the, the behavior of an animal. And it's descriptive of a sodomite. Amen. In uh, Romans chapter 1, let's look at these verses. Are you blessed yet? You know, I'm not trying to dump on anybody, but again, there's people today, there's actually Christians who are for homosexuality and saying it's an alternative lifestyle. Just, you know, it's fine and stuff. It does not, it is not compatible with the Bible. If you have this first philosophy that you are going to believe that God's word is accurate and it's not just men writing about God, but this is God inspired and it's not just for an age back then, it applies to us today. If you're going to believe that the Bible is God speaking to us, then homosexuality is not compatible with the Bible. It cannot be promoted. It can be forgiven. You can love people who do that, but you cannot promote it as a normal lifestyle. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 26, it begins to start talking in verse 21 about progressive steps that people take away from God and how they get further and further and further away from God is what it's describing here. And so in verse 26, it says, For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. And everything listed from this point on is called a vile affection. The Bible is saying that this is not a good affection. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, talking about lesbianism. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust one towards another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. I think that this is talking about all kinds of sexual uh, you know, diseases and stuff, um, sexually transmitted diseases, AIDS and things like this. This is not to say that God put these on people. There's just consequences. You know, if you hit your hand with a hammer, it's going to swell up and it's going to get blood in it and it's going to hurt and stuff. And God didn't do that to you, but it is laws that God put into practice. I mean, you aren't supposed to smush your hand. You aren't supposed to do certain things. And you aren't supposed to be a homosexual or a lesbian. And if you do it, you are uh, creating perversion that has consequences. And this verse is just saying that it's a just recompense. Not that God is the one that caused it, but there are consequences to the way you act. I'm going to give you some stats and show you that homosexuality is a very destructive lifestyle that takes 20 years off the average homosexual life. It cuts 20 years off of your life. If you were objective, if you weren't trying to be politically correct, if you really cared about people, you would say something about anything that takes 20 years off people's life. Mayor Bloomberg is wanting to pass laws against sodas and against fat and things like this because it could affect you and things like this. And yet they promote homosexuality, which takes 20 years off of your life. That's hypocritical. It's a hypocrite. It is not consistent. I guarantee you, sodas are not near as bad for you as homosexuality. (laughs) 
And so in verse 27, again, it says, likewise, the man leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one towards another man with man working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, this is a key point right here. And let me just say that, you know what, the reason the homosexual agenda and all, you could just go on and on and talk about all kinds of immorality and stuff. But the reason people fight so hard against anybody who says this is wrong, it's a destructive lifestyle. The reason they do it is because they do not like to retain God in their knowledge. As long as if they were to open up their heart and say, God, I love you and I want to serve you. What do you want? If they were to do that, I guarantee you the Holy Spirit would show them this is a destructive lifestyle. Quit it. And those people don't want to be told no. They want to persist. And so they are intentionally trying to come against any conviction, any person who represents the voice of God or morality. They have an agenda. I could go on and further. I'm just going to say this. I won't spend time on it. But there is a spirit of Antichrist, which the Bible says already works in this world. And we have a spirit of Antichrist at work in the government, in the mainstream media, in America, that is anti-God. They aren't anti-Muslim. They aren't anti-Buddha. The Muslims, you, they can get by with anything, but Christians, I guarantee you, Christians are being persecuted and being restricted further and further and further. There is a spirit of antichrist. Nobody curses using the name of Buddha because Buddha doesn't mean anything. He's dead, but there's power in the name of Jesus. People will curse and use the name of Jesus. And there is a spirit of antichrist and it says right here that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And because they didn't, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, things that are not good for you, things that are not right and morally correct. Did you know a person, once they start getting into homosexuality, it lists a lot of things right here. Homosexuality is one of the last steps before a person is completely reprobate. The word reprobate means void of any conviction, void of God dealing with them at all. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says that you can sear your conscience with a hot iron. That's talking about like if you had a wound, you can take a hot iron and sear it and you can literally scar your flesh and it'll seal up that wound, but it'll kill all of the nerves. It makes you impervious to pain and it just deadens you to everything. You can sear your conscience with a hot iron and homosexuality is one of the very last steps before a person reaches a place of no return. That's what this is talking about. John chapter six, verse 44 says, no man can come unto the father except the spirit draw him. If God turns you over to a reprobate mind and says, that's it. You want this lifestyle? Help yourself. I am removing conviction from you. If God ever does that, you're, you're damned. You're doomed. You will never come to God without him drawing you and without him wooing you. And people right here, if you study this out, I'm not going to take the time to read all of it, but if you study this out, homosexuality is one of the very last stages before a person becomes reprobate. So again, in verse 28, it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, 
you know, I could spend a lot of time, but it puts some things here that people consider just to be, you know, maybe not the best thing, but certainly it's just okay. That's just the way I am. I gossip, I whisper, I say a few things. It puts it right in the same category as homosexuality, murder, adultery, everything else. These, this is a bad list. In verse 30, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud. Pride is an evil, evil thing. Proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Put this together with 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where it lists signs of the end times. And disobedient to parents is one of those things in there. It's a sign that we're in the end times. And it also lists homosexuality over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It calls it effeminate there, but it's, uh, it's talking about homosexuality. And in verse 31, without understanding, man, is that descriptive, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. You know, when I was a kid, I don't think that you could have imagined a day when people would sit there and have gay pride days and parades and make it, you know, some day to honor homosexuals. And they would have parades where people would, would uh, do these kind of things. That was just unheard of 50 years ago. And yet today it's commonplace. And this is a sign of where our society stands in our moral condition. It is a terrible thing. Again, God loves us. I'm not preaching hate, but I am saying that this is not a positive thing. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. If you look that up in any other translation, this is talking about homosexuals. Abusers of themselves with mankind is what that is talking about. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And look in verse uh, 11. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified. This isn't saying that any person who commits those things will never enter into the kingdom of God because all of us, if you take this whole list right here, all of us have lied. All of us have done some form of this. Colossians chapter three, verse five says, covetousness is idolatry. And so if you've ever coveted something, if you've wanted something that somebody else had, you have broken things in this list. But the good news is you can be forgiven of it. I'm not saying that homosexuality is something that we should hate people and we should do bad things to them, but I am saying it is a wrong lifestyle, just like covetousness, just, just like idolatry, just like all of the other things in this list. The Bible says it's sin. You cannot embrace it and you cannot promote it. I'm not against people that have stole. If you've ever lied, I'm not against you. I'm not trying to beat you down and make you feel condemned. Jesus has forgiven you. And you can receive that forgiveness. But I'll tell you, you should quit lying. You, quit, you should quit stealing. You should quit sleeping around. It's damaging to you. It's not right. And it is absolutely wrong for the body of Christ to promote a lifestyle that is destructive and contrary to God's system. 
You can give forgiveness to those people and tell them that God loves you and God wants you to set, set you free, but you cannot sit there and put your stamp of approval on it. It's wrong. Thank you for that one. Amen, Deb. You may not like that, but you need to know what the Word of God has to say. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And in verse uh, 9. Knowing that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind. Again, every other translation puts this as homosexuality is what that's talking about. For man-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Homosexuality is contrary to sound doctrine. And it is not a godly concept is what this says. In Jude chapter 1, verse 7. Jude is the book right before Revelation. It's just one chapter, just a few verses. In Jude chapter 1, verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Do you know a very similar thing is said right here in 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're, you're close, if you're in Jude, 2 Peter chapter uh, 2 and in verse 6 it says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow, making them an example unto those that should, uh, that after should live ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah, here's two places that say Sodom and Gomorrah was used as an example by God for everyone who lives after about what God's opinion on homosexuality is. Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is listed in Genesis chapter 19, if you want to read it. And two angels went down to visit Lot and his family. And before they went to bed that night, uh, the men of the city, it says, every man in the city came and said, bring these men out that we might know them. The word know in the old King James is talking about intimate sexual relationship. And uh, anyway, God destroyed that city and rained fire and brimstone and utterly destroyed them. That's in the area of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea used to be lush, according to the Bible, and yet fire and brimstone fell. Apparently, that whole area fell down into a depression. It's now under the Dead Sea. It's a Dead Sea, and it's still a testimony today. It used to be lush and beautiful, and if you go to the Dead Sea now, it is just dead and desert. And it is an example for anybody who wants to see it of what God's opinion of, of homosexuality, sodomy is. It's wrong. Amen. If you believe in the Bible, if the Bible is the foundation of your belief, you cannot promote and embrace homosexuality. You can love the people and minister to them and tell them that there is forgiveness and it's no different than any other. James chapter 2 verse 10 says that if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you're a religious Pharisee, you are as guilty as a homosexual. 
You've broken the law of God. If you're trusting in your own goodness, if you're a gossip, if you are proud and boasting, you have sinned. You know what? People who criticize me aren't going to listen to that. They will take that out if they give any sound bites and they will just make it sound like I hate homosexuals. I don't hate homosexuals any more than I hate any one of us that have sinned. But I'm saying it is sin. It's wrong. It is a destructive lifestyle. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Let me give you some physical facts. You know, sad to say, I can understand how a person that doesn't believe in the Bible could buy the, the lie of people today and say that we're supposed to accept everybody and it's just an alternative lifestyle, etc. I could even understand that, but I don't understand how people who say they're Christians can embrace this and promote it. It just amazes me. It is incompatible with the Bible, but... I also know this, that very few Christians let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. Most Christians have a philosophy that is based on how they were brought up on what has been the influence of their peers and things like that. Most people are plugged into the world and they gain their philosophy, their attitude, not based on the Bible. That's the reason somebody has to stand up and say, here's what the Bible has to say. And this is incompatible with it. And so I think it's important. But for those of you who don't let the Bible get in the way of what you believe, here are some natural facts that maybe will convince you. First of all, the homosexuals claim 10% of the American population to be homosexual. And yet uh, statistics show that it's more around 1% to 2%. The 2000 uh, census in the United States showed 1% of American households claim homosexuality. So the first place, the homosexuals claim a disproportional amount and they have a disproportional influence. They, it's like the tail wagging the dog. A very small number of people are making a big deal out of that. And in the first place, that's not right. Here's some other statistics. This, some of you will dislike this, but you know what? This is just statistics. You can go, I, I've got in my book the source for this. I'm not sure I can come up with this. Here's, here's the source that I used, A.P. Bell and M.S. Weinberg, Homosexualities, a Study of Diversity Among Men and Women. And so anyway, I've got statistics on all of these things. But here is a statistic that will blow some people away. 43% of white male homosexuals have sex with over 500 people in their lifetime. 43% of all homosexuals have over 500 partners in a lifetime. 28% of them have over 1,000. And yet one of the things that they want to present is that this is just a, uh, it's an alternative lifestyle. It's no different than a man and a woman. It's just two men together, two women together, but there is nothing perverse about it. it they're just respectable, honorable people. I guarantee you, if you had any heterosexual couple that had a 500 or a thousand sexual partners in a lifetime, that's perversion. That is not good. That's not good for you. That's not good for the other person. That's not good for society. That's bad. And this is one of the hidden facts about homosexuality that they don't want you to know, but it is there. As a matter of fact, I think it was May the 8th that uh, North Carolina came out and defined marriage as a relationship between a man and a woman. That was May the 8th, 2012. 
On May the 9th, the very next day, President Obama came out and endorsed homosexual marriage and unions and began to promote it. And here's what he said. I've got this exact quote in my book somewhere. I think I've also got it written down. But he was promoting it. And here is a portion of what he said. He came out in support and he said that he has many on his staff who are in incredibly monogamous relationships, same sex relationships who are raising kids together. And that was his statement that they are in incredibly monogamous relationships. Well, I don't know enough to tell, you know, I'm sure that there's somebody who's a homosexual who sticks with the person forever, but it's certainly not the norm. That's like taking a person who uh, drives while they're drunk And if they get home safe, then you endorse drunk driving because this person made it and it didn't hurt them. Just because somebody may be doing it and they don't have 500 or 1,000 sexual partners in a lifetime, that is not true of the majority of them. Again, this is unusual for me to teach from statistics. But Uh, I don't know if they've got these charts and stuff, but there are 80% of married females claim fidelity in their marriage, that they stick to their mate. 75.5% of males claim that they are faithful to their mate. But among homosexual males, there's only less than 5% that even claim to be faithful. It is not an acceptable lifestyle by any stretch of the imagination, even if you take out of it what the Bible has to say and all of these kind of things. And in the Netherlands, where homosexuality has been accepted since 2001, and I mean, it's openly promoted. We've been over there and they they do a lot of things in the Netherlands. But in the Netherlands, where homosexuality is now accepted and promoted, The average person, the arrangement that they have, the average homosexual in the Netherlands has eight uh, relationships outside of their marriage per year. That is the statistic. There is only 1.5%, I think, of homosexual relationships that last over one year. I've got a graph on that. I don't know if my guys can bring that up. But here's another stat on this. Um, Anyway, there's only 1%, I think, that last, or excuse me, the average homosexual relationships last 1.5 years, whereas the uh, average for marriage, do you have any of those graphs? Yeah, those are better. Here's 50% of married couples uh, heterosexual lasts 50 years. I mean, it's 20 years or more. 50% last 20 years or more, which isn't good. It should be a lot better than that. But among homosexuals, 5% last 20 years or more with the average length of a homosexual relationship lasting 1.5 years. So anytime they try and present themselves as this is just, we are very respectable, honorable people. We are monogamous. We are committed to our spouse. I'm sure that there's somebody who's like that, but they are the exception rather than the rule. And that would be like endorsing drunk driving because somebody drove drunk and didn't kill somebody. So therefore we ought to let everybody drive drunk. It's a destructive thing. It's damaging. Amen. And if we weren't politically correct, 
and afraid of somebody yelling bigot or something like that, we would do something about it. Like I said, here's a statistic that the average homosexual, it takes 20 years off of your life. Did you know that smoking takes seven years? Some studies say 10 years maximum. And yet we put a warning on every cigarette. Surgeon General's warning, this can be hazardous to your health. If we weren't hypocritical, if we weren't afraid of what people had to say, if we loved other people more than we loved ourselves, we ought to put some kind of a stamp on every homosexual's forehead that warning, this will take 20 years off of your life. Amen. I'm not against you. I love you is the reason I'm telling you the truth. It's a destructive lifestyle. It is not healthy. Here's some more statistics if you aren't bored with my statistics yet. Partner violence. Lesbians. Do you have that one? I think it's 11.4% of lesbians uh, report partner violence. Among married women, it's one quarter of 1%. Less than 1%. I forget what that difference would be, but if they had 1% partner violence among heterosexual women, then that would be... Uh, less than 10%, about, it would be at least 10 or 11 times greater. When you go to one fourth, it'd be four times that. So it'd be 44 times greater. The partner violence. When you look at homosexual men, that is, I think, what, 17 point something percent? Homosexual men, it's 14.4% report partner violence. Among married men, it's five hundredths of 1%. That makes this hundreds of times more violent. If anybody was honest and was actually caring about something, then they would sit there and say, homosexuality is damaging. Look at these statistics. You have like 200 times as much chance of having violence in this relationship as if you were married to a woman. It's a damaging lifestyle. It's a hurtful lifestyle. You know, if people weren't prejudiced and if there wasn't this anti-Christ spirit in our world, that cows Christians into silence, if people just looked at things objectively, if you could take a food, let's say that eating sugar, refined sugar, caused 200 times as much violence among homosexuals as it does among anybody else and stuff. I guarantee you, Bloomberg and everybody else had come out against this and ban it and say, you can't do this, you can't eat this. As I go on and talk about this, the... uh, The chances of suicide among homosexuals are over twice as great as people who are heterosexuals. It causes all kinds of anal cancers and things like that among women. And here's something that ought to affect women. Did you know that lesbian women are like 200 times as likely to gain weight? Boy, in our society where they're legislating fat and trying to get you to quit this, that ought to make people against homosexuality. The increases of breast cancer, cervical cancer increase dramatically. It is a huge difference. Homosexuality is a damaging lifestyle. It is not acceptable by biblical standards. And if people weren't prejudiced, if they were honest, they wouldn't do it based on just physical, natural facts because it is damaging to people. Some people say, but it's genetic. You can't help it. 
Did you know that there was a study done? And I've got this in my book again. I'm not going to go back and try and find it. I'll just re- recite to you what I remember out of it. But in, I think it was in 1948, there was a study done about twins in the same family. And they found out that if one twin was homosexual, or not, excuse me, not just twins, but siblings. And if the... Um, If one sibling was a homosexual, there was 200 to 300 times as many uh, other siblings in the home homosexuals as those who had no homosexuals in it. So anyway, they were saying from this that, see, it's in their DNA. But that study in this very study that was published, I think it was 1948, that very study had a footnote that said this does not prove that homosexuality is genetic because in the same study, they studied siblings who one was adopted and didn't share the same DNA and the statistics were the same for them. So that means that it wasn't their DNA that caused it. It was their environment that caused it. And the study said that themselves, but yet the media took that one statement and this one thing and they began to promote it. It was in 1975 that the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from a mental disorder. Not until 1975, I think it was. And they even said themselves, here, I've got a quote in my book. I don't know if I can find this or not. But anyway, they say that there has never been any proof that it is genetic, hormone-based. There is zero proof. And yet the American Psychological Association bowed to the gay and lesbian pressure and threats of uh, lawsuits. And they went ahead and listed it as uh, something that is genetic. And yet in their own brochure, they say that it is not. There is zero proof of it. But this is the stance that they've taken. Amen or oh me. Again, I am not against any person. I believe that God loves homosexuals, but that does not mean that it is something that we should accept and promote. It is not acceptable. It is not genetic. God would be absolutely unjust to tell you not to do something if you were genetically disposed and couldn't stop doing it. The reason God holds us accountable is because we can do it. It is a choice. Nobody is born homosexual. Today, we have, we have it being promoted. Matter of fact, right here in Massachusetts, I wished I could find this. Here it is. Let me just read some of this to you. It says, in Massachusetts, the father of a kindergartner was arrested and taken to jail during a scheduled meeting with the elementary school principal and a member of the school board over objections to the homosexual curriculum being presented in his son's kindergarten class. Even though Massachusetts has a law that allows parents to opt their children out of curriculum they don't approve of, the education authorities in Lexington refuse to allow parents to opt their kids out of the homosexual classes in that school the gay lobby interpreted the passage of the same-sex marriage law in Massachusetts as a go-ahead to indoctrinate vulnerable kids into their destructive worldview, regardless of whether or not the parents approve. Such propaganda has no place in the classroom of five- and six-year-olds. It is the case of the world calling evil good and good, the father, evil. That's Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. That happened right here in Massachusetts. And people say all that stuff, doesn't it? It's already happened. And did you know what? There have been pastors who have 
actually had to perform homosexual marriages or face discrimination laws and punishment. There are ministries that have closed. This has already happened because they, homosexuals want to come and join. And if the ministry says that is not our policy, we don't promote that, then uh, they can bring lawsuits and, and they aren't able to afford the lawsuits. And so ministries have been closed to shut down, uh, have been forced to shut down because of this. I tell you what, it is not as it's being presented that these are just sweet loving people and that they're just, it's just an alternative lifestyle and they're moral. It's just that they have a different set of morality. No, it's immoral. It is a perversion. It hurts people. It hurts those people. It's destructive to them. It cuts their lifestyle down and it is destructive to the family and the American culture. And I guarantee you, it is something that we should not promote. We should love the people. I'm against any person who goes out and terrorizes or treats homosexuals bad. You know, I'm sure that it happens. I've heard stories of homosexuals being beat up and being taunted and bullied and stuff. And I know it happens, but I've never done that. There's not a single person I know who would promote something like that. Nobody's against the individuals. We're just saying that that lifestyle is destructive and you cannot say it's not. If you look at statistics, if you don't have a prejudice. If you aren't biased, if you aren't bigoted, you cannot look at stats and say that homosexuality is okay and it's an alternative lifestyle. Based on scripture, based on stats, and I got a lot of these stats off the gay and lesbians uh, website. They presented as see how abused we are. There's 200 times as much suicide. There's more part partner abuse and stuff. And they look at it as this is reason to pity them. I look at it as this is reason not to be one of them. Amen. It is an unacceptable lifestyle. And I'm not saying that because I hate people. I'm saying it because I hate sin and I hate things that destroy people. And we should not be promoting something that is causing these problems. So let me just summarize. Here's some of the things I said. Partner violence is 44 times greater among lesbians and 300 times greater among homosexual men. That one statistic ought to make people say you shouldn't be this. Homosexuals are at least 50% more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. If there was a pill, if there was some food that people ate that made them 50% more likely to have depression, substance abuse, anxiety, I guarantee you they'd outlaw that pill. The Food and Drug Administration would regulate it. But when it comes to morality, if it's homosexuality, let them go, even though it's destroying people's lives. The risk of suicide is 200% greater for homosexuals. Again, if there was anything in the natural, if there was some substance that you ate that caused that, they would ban it. They'd come out against it. But because it's homosexuality, they won't tell you this and they'll actually promote it. Homosexuals are twice as likely to contact AIDS. Life expectancy is reduced by 20 years among homosexuals. Homosexual men are twice as likely to have been diagnosed with cancer as non-homosexual men. Lesbians are at a higher risk for breast cancer. Lesbians are twice as likely to be obese. If people weren't politically correct phobic And if they would look at the facts, you would stand against this on just the basis of morality and what's good for people. And if you look at it in the light of scripture, 
You cannot defend this. It is not a godly lifestyle. Amen. And anyway, there's a lot more that goes along with this. I am not against anybody. If we've got homosexuals in here, I love you. God loves you. God's already forgiven your sin. You don't go to hell for the sin of homosexuality. You go to hell for rejecting Jesus who paid for your homosexuality. The sin of rejecting Jesus is the only thing that sends people to hell. I'm not preaching that you're a terrible person. I'm saying that what you're doing is a terrible thing that is a destructive lifestyle. And if you were objective, if you hadn't drunk the Kool-Aid, Jamie told me I needed to explain that because we've got young people in here that don't follow that. But some of you can remember Jim Jones and all of his followers that went down to Ghana and he put poison in the Kool-Aid and hundreds of people drank the Kool-Aid and died. We have drunk the Kool-Aid, the lies of this society and it's poisoning us and killing us. And unless you've just drunk the Kool-Aid, if you're objective and think about it, there is not a moral or a natural physical reason to promote homosexuality. It is damaging and hurtful. And if you go back into history, man, I didn't even do this, but I have studied, you know, homosexuality, once it rises to a place of acceptance and promotion in any society, it has killed every society that has ever embraced homosexuality. No society has ever lasted very long once that happens. And we are in the process of doing that. That's wrong. Christians need to stand up. Did you know it used to be wrong in this nation? Some of you have heard the expression about drummed out. You know what that came from? George Washington had a homosexual in his camp at Valley Forge. And when he found out that he was a homosexual and practicing homosexuality, he kicked him out of the army and he had the people lined up in the drum corps. there beating the drum so that everybody could see that this is unacceptable lifestyle and they kicked him out of the army. That's what the term drummed out came from. And that was done in this nation by George Washington, the founding father of this nation. It has never been accepted and promoted. It wasn't right then and it's not right now. It's wrong. We ought to love the people, reach out to them and help them. We shouldn't hate them, but we shouldn't promote something. If we loved them more than we loved ourselves, we'd tell the truth. And I can tell you, there's some of you that just, it it wrenches your heart. Your stomach turns to think about, oh, I'd never stand up and say anything. You know why? Because you love yourself more than you love other people. And you aren't going to tell them the truth, even though it could save their life because it might cost you something. People might call you a homophobe. People might criticize you. You know, the guy who runs Chick-fil-A just stood up and said that homosexuality is wrong. And so they are coming out and... Boston has said he is not welcome to have a Chick-fil-A in Boston. That's wrong. You know, they say, well, he's intolerant. Tell me who's intolerant. I guarantee you, if a homosexual comes into his restaurant, he'll serve them. He wouldn't deny them service. He wouldn't persecute them. He wouldn't make fun of them. He wouldn't bully them. He just doesn't believe that it's a good lifestyle. So tell me who's intolerant. It's the homosexuals that are intolerant. If you don't agree with them, man, they get militant about it. Amen. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. All right, let me move on. I need to, I want to talk about, um, 
abortion. And man, this is something that's near to my heart. I'm sorry that I'm having to cram these two together because man, we need an hour at least on each one of these. But um, let me just say some things about abortion that, you know what, since the Roe versus Wade decision, 1973, there's been over 53 million babies aborted in the United States. And that is not including all abortions. New York, California, and one other state, Louisiana aren't required to report all of their abortions, so they voluntarily report some. But New York and California are two of the biggest abortion mills in the country, and so this 53 million since 73 isn't including all of them. Did you know that 42% of all deaths in the world come from abortion? There are 45 million people murdered every year in abortion. And in the United States, the largest population growth by birth in any one year is just under 5 million. And yet there's 45 million children murdered every year in the world. 42% of all deaths come from abortion. I'm not going to mention names of organizations, but these organizations who are very well represented by the United Nation and other things. And when you go on an airplane, say, give your change to help children and do this stuff. You know what that is? They do have some programs where they have schools and they give school supplies and they do some things. But about 90 cents of every dollar that you give to those organizations goes to abortion. They are the largest funder of abortion in the world. And that's what they call helping children. They are keeping them from suffering by killing them. That's wrong. Abortion is murder. I'm going to share some scriptures with you. And I know, see, this is, people have bought into the lie. They've drunk the Kool-Aid that no, it's not murder. Matter of fact, when the Roe versus Wade decision happened, this was one of the issues that came up. It says, is that a viable human being? Is that life or is it just tissue? And there wasn't scientific research on it in 1973 because nobody with half a brain had ever countered or questioned when life begins. They believed that a child in its mother's womb was to be protected, but there wasn't any scientific proof because nobody had ever demanded it. And so in the absence of scientific proof, they looked at any other opinion as being superstition or just religious belief. And they ruled that there was no scientific proof that this was a separate individual. And so they said that the woman is free to do whatever she wants to do with her own body. And so the Supreme Court allowed abortions in 1973. Since that time, there has been a backlash and people have done research. They now show that a child has a separate DNA. There is a link, but it is a separate DNA. Most children, many children have a separate blood type that the heart is beating within 22 days, even before the woman knows that she's pregnant. She's already Uh, The heart is beating and pumping life through there. The Bible makes it very clear that the life of the flesh is in the blood and they have a separate blood type in their mother's womb. And uh, they have, there's this film that I, uh, I helped start a pregnancy center in Colorado Springs and we have seen tremendous results. 
And uh, we've seen thousands and thousands of children saved and people saved and born again and good things happen. And we put out this uh, film or I, it, I didn't do it. I just took the film and promoted it in our malls and things like this. It's called The Silent Scream. And it's all scientific evidence about what goes on in the womb and how the child is a viable, live human being. They feel pain at a very young age. Children that are aborted, that's the reason they called it the silent scream. They actually have a sonogram of a child being aborted and they show the child screaming out in pain. Children feel pain in their mother's womb. And this is, this is found in scripture. Look over in Luke chapter one. In Luke chapter one, it was prophesied that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And so after the Lord appeared unto Mary and told her that she was going to conceive and have a child. And the Lord also told her as a confirmation that your cousin Elizabeth, who was an old woman who was past childbearing age, was going to have a miraculous birth and her son was going to be John the Baptist and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. When Mary heard that, immediately she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, I'm sure probably to get partial confirmation to see if what the angel told her was correct. It'd be tremendous confirmation to her. And as she walked in, here is the account of Mary coming and greeting Elizabeth. And... um, in verse, this is uh, Luke chapter one. Let's begin reading with verse 38. And Mary said, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed. That was the end of the Gabriel announcing to her. And in verse 39, and Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judea and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And came, and it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord... Notice she didn't say the mother of the one who is, will become my Lord. He was Lord at that moment probably just a few days into the conception process. The mother of my Lord, which which is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come unto me for lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And if you read this, it was in the sixth month back here in verse, um, What is that? Verse 26, in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So when John the Baptist was only six months into his development, Mary came and when John the Baptist heard Mary's voice, John the Baptist leapt for joy. One of the things that pro-abortionists will tell you is that those aren't people, those aren't viable. They call them fetus, which I hate to use that term. Literally, it just means child or uh, I forget exactly. But anyway, it's not a derogatory term, but they have begun to start using this to dehumanize it and make it sound like it's not a baby. So I don't like to use that term. But when John the Baptist was just six months into his development, he had joy and leapt for joy in his mother's womb and was filled with the Holy Spirit. I can guarantee you the Holy Spirit did not fill a hunk of flesh 
The Holy Spirit doesn't just fill a wart or something like this. He fills people. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit three months before he was born. For anybody who believes the Bible, this ought to be sufficient to say that that is not just a hunk of flesh. It is a human being. And people say, but it's not viable. If that baby was to come out somehow or another premature, it couldn't live. They now have children that have been saved who've been born less than one pound. That is not a valid argument anymore. You can sustain that life. And really it's a, it's a wrong argument in the first place. Because if you took a child who was fully developed and born after nine months worth of pregnancy, and if you took that child and if you didn't take care of it and feed it and nurture it and protect it, that child would die anyway. A child has to be, I don't know, four or five years old probably before it could live on its own and totally take care of itself. This whole argument is just an, a justification for people to say that I don't want this child and they dehumanize it by calling it a fetus and say that it's not a human. But according to scripture, John the Baptist was a living human being who jumped for joy at six months into the pregnancy and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look over in in Jeremiah chapter one. And this is God speaking to Jeremiah when he called him to minister. And he said in verse four, then the word of the Lord came unto me saying, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God ordained, sanctified, that means set apart and make holy Jeremiah before he came forth out of his mother's womb and he was called and separated and sanctified to be a prophet unto the nations. Paul said this same thing in Galatians chapter two, I believe it's verse 15, when God who separated me unto the gospel from my mother's womb. In the mother's womb, God had a purpose for people. Look at this in Psalms chapter 139. Here's a passage of scripture that pertains directly to a child in the mother's womb. Psalms 139. And in verse 13, for thou hast possessed my reins. That's talking about heart. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest part of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. You know, that's a little wordy in the King James. I've got, here's the NIV translation of that. It says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
God has already written down for every one of us what he has ordained us to do before we ever come out of the womb. I don't want to get off on a sidetrack, but this doesn't mean that it's automatically going to come to pass. God doesn't control your life and sovereignly make things happen, but he has a plan for your life, a purpose for every person. You know, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that to those who believe on him, he will not blot your name out of the book of life. Most people have never thought about that. But what that means is everybody's name is written in the book of life. God ordained for every single person to be born again, but he has your life planned out how he's going to bring every person into relationship with him into being born again. But if you don't cooperate and if you renounce or ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he will blot your name out of that book. But at one time he had it in there and he had it in every person's book what your life is supposed to be life and the good things that are supposed to happen. But you have total right to reject God's direction and do things your own way. But there is a book written down. Every child, every 53 million children that has been aborted in the United States and hundreds of millions of children around the world had a book written down where God planned what their life was supposed to be like, what they were supposed to do. He didn't do that for some non-human. He knew their substance before they were ever formed and it was written in his book, the things that were ordained for them. Here's the amplified translation of this same verse. It says, for you did form my inward parts. You did knit me together in my mother's womb. I will confess and praise you for you are fearfully, For you are fearful and wonderful and for the awful wonder of my birth. Wonderful are your works and that my inner self knows right well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being formed in secret and intricately and curiously wrought as if embroidered with various colors in the depths of the earth, a region of darkness and mystery. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book, all the days of my life were written before ever they took shape when as yet there was none of them. Again, if people believe scripture, you cannot believe that you have the right to just terminate a pregnancy and do those things. It kills a living human being. Let me get on to some of these other facts that I want to cover, but um, I'm going to have to cut some of this short. I hate to do it. But, you know, they will say, but uh, if you outlaw abortion, what about all the rape and the incest and things like this? There are less than 6% of all abortions that are done for some type of medical or rape or incest reason. Actually, there are less than one half of 1% of abortions are performed because of incest. There's about 1% that happen because of rape. And then this other, this 5% that they say happens because of possible medical reasons. I looked at a survey and you know what the medical reason was? It was they ticked morning sickness. And they justified that as a medical reason for terminating their pregnancy. If you look at the hard facts and peel the things back, there's only about one to one and a half percent of all abortions are done because of incest or rape. And even in those situations, that is not justification for killing a life. 
I just had a woman stay at our lodge, a friend of mine for 20 something years. And this woman was raped. She was out jogging and she was raped by a person of another uh, race. So it was an interracial marriage. And this has been 30 something years ago. So it was even less accepted back then than it is now. And she thought about uh, having an abortion and God, she was Christian and God just spoke to her and says, what right do you have to kill my child? And so she decided to put this child up for adoption. And I asked her about how that child's doing. And you know what? She said that she just graduated from college. She's married. She's doing great. She's got a great life. And, uh, you know, they have a great relationship. There's no problem. I understand that sometimes it can be a hardship, but that is not a justification for killing a person. Sometimes they'll say, but the child could have a hard life and be deformed. Well, what could be harder than getting killed? We have the Trovers on one of our healing journeys that their child was diagnosed with Down syndrome out of, I think, 30 markers. They had 29 of the markers. This child had every symptom of Down syndromes. They prayed and believed and that child was born perfectly healthy. You can get your children healed. You don't have to kill them because they may have some problem. Really what it comes down to is people, and I... Here's another statistic that, you know, 70% of the women who get abortions claim that they're Christian. Now, I will admit that probably a large percentage of those just claim Christianity because they aren't Buddhist or Methodist or, you know, whatever. But nonetheless, I shouldn't have put Methodist in there. Buddhist or Muslim or something. But that was a slip of the lip. Don't get on my case. So not all of those are true born again Christians, but you know, the statistics are that 20, nearly 30% of all Christian women have had an abortion or will have an abortion. And I'm not against you. I've got a woman, Connie, Connie Weiskopf, who is going to be on my television programs next month or in September. She's had multiple abortions and you know what? I love her. I'm helping her get a ministry going. I support her. I'm not bad on her. I'm not trying to condemn her. There's love, but it's wrong. It's wrong. It's forgivable, but it's wrong. It's murder, but it's wrong. It is not scriptural. And if you are going to have a Christian philosophy, then you're going to have to embrace what the Bible says, or just quit playing the game and calling yourself a Christian. If you aren't going to have a Christian philosophy. Do you have to believe against abortion in order to be a Christian? No, I believe that God's got kids that have got all kinds of things that they believe that are incorrect. But I tell you, that is the Christian way of looking at it. And when you killed a child, you are killing a a living human being. And here's another statistic they won't talk about. I'm not sure that I've got time to find all of these things, but I got so many statistics on all of this. But did you know among women that have had an abortion, they'll sit there and tell you that it doesn't affect them. But man, it is an emotional disaster. The abortion places will not tell you this. Did you know that Planned Parenthood, I wish I had time to go through all this. Planned Parenthood was started by Margaret Sanger in 1921. And it used to be called, I forgot, but now it's called Planned Parenthood. And she was a eugenics person. It's the theology that Hitler had selective breeding. And I've got all of these quotes by her. Some of these, I've just got to read 
some of her speeches that she gave. Here, here's some, um, here's some other stats. I just got to say some of these things. 74% of women who had an abortion said that having a baby would interfere with their career, education, or ability to care for other family members. So they killed them. 73%. Now, of course, this adds up to more than 100%. So some gave multiple reasons for their abortion. 73% say they couldn't afford a baby. So that justifies murder. That doesn't make sense. 48% don't want to be single mothers or have relationship problems that could come by having a baby. 25% don't want anyone else to know that they have had sex or are pregnant. 1% were the victims of rape. Less than half of 1% became pregnant because of incest. Uh, here's some of these statements about eugenics. Eugenics is the study of hereditary improvement of the human race by controlled selective breeding. And Margaret Sanger is the one who started Planned Parenthood. And um, here are some of the quotes from her speeches that she gave. We desire to stop at its source the disease, poverty, and feeble-mindedness and insanity which exist today. For these lower the standards of civilization and make for race deterioration. Did you know that that is the founding member of Planned Parenthood? That's what it was started to do. Here's another quote. We would make it a law that children should be brought into the world only when they were welcome, invited, and wanted that they would arrive with a clean bill of health and heritage, that they would possess healthy, happy, well-mated, and mature parents. And unless they meet that criteria, she was for abortion. Here's another quote. Every single case of inherited defect, every malformed child, every congenitally tainted human being brought into this world is of infinite importance to that poor individual but is of scarcely less importance to the rest of us and to all of our children who must pay in one way or another for these biological and racial mistakes. Man, how clear can you get? Here's another speech. The campaign for birth control is not merely of eugenic value. That's selective breeding again is the definition of that, but is practically identical and ideal with the final aims of eugenics. Sander concludes... Birth control propaganda is thus the entering wedge for the eugenic educator. And this is still the pattern that Planned Parenthood is following. They'll talk about how Planned Parenthood is helping women. And again, they have some programs that do help women with birth control and neonatal care. And they have enough stuff that they can quote that we do this. But if you look at their statistics, nearly 90% of every dollar that they get goes straight to abortion they are making billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars off of abortion. It is the love of money. It is a, it is a hidden agenda and abortion is murder and it is ministered by just selfish people who are out to make money. I could go into partial birth abortions where they actually stick a thing in the skull of a baby and suck the brains out. That's a partial birth abortion. It's terrible. This is murder. You know, they're talking about social security is getting to where because of the baby boomers are getting older. We got this large segment of people who now need help and there are less children. 
And because of it, we're upside down and Social Security is running out of money. If you had 53 million more people in the workforce who hadn't been murdered, you wouldn't have any of the economic woes, et cetera, et cetera. I'm telling you, abortion, whether people realize it or not, I know many people go into this and they just don't know what they're getting themselves into, but it is inspired demonically. It is the devil trying, you know, when Moses came along, Pharaoh tried to kill all of the young children. When Jesus came along, Caesar, I mean, um, who was a Herod tried to kill all of the young children. Every time there's been significant things happen, there has been an attack on young children. Did you know that Hitler, the very first people that he started killing were toddlers, children who he considered to be ineffective. And then he went to diseased and elderly people and eventually went to the Jews. But did you know it's the same? It's the same plan. It's the same route. Once you start allowing abortion, what's to stop euthanasia? What's to start saying that this person, I guarantee you, if we ever, some of you will get mad at me over this, but if you aren't mad by now, you're pretty much in my camp, amen. So, <laughs> but once you get national health care, they do this in England. You can ask the people from England. They will start selecting whose life is worth saving because it's going to cost money and it's going to cost us all. And I have had numbers of people come to me in England who couldn't get healed because the health system said they were a risk. They were too old. They were too young. The chances of a cure were too little. And so they wouldn't administer the medicine to them because it wasn't a good risk. It wasn't a good resource. If we get national health care, that's what they'll start doing. And they'll look at some of you and say, you're too old. We're going to let you die because it would cost too much money to save your life. The chances of you being healed by this are too little. Nowadays, you can gripe all you want to, but people from all over the world come to the United States to get their health care. And you know what? There is a law in the United States that you have to stabilize any person who's in trauma. You cannot deny them service because of lack of money. Now, you could deny them further care, long-term treatment, but you have to deal with a crisis in any person's life. It is all a smoke screen. It's a ruse. And I tell you what, there's some bad things happening out there and abortion is one of them. And so I just wanted to present this. Christians need to speak out. And you know what? I love you if you've had an abortion. If you're considering an abortion now, God loves you. And I do believe that you can be forgiven, but I'm telling you it's murder. And I'm telling you, you will suffer for it. I've This pregnancy center that we helped start in Colorado Springs, we have a program called PACE, Post-Abortion Counseling Education. And it's a service that's just to women who've had abortions. And I mean every woman who comes in there when they get into a safe place and they are given encouragement, you know, to receive their healing and their forgiveness. Every single woman just falls apart in their heart. They know that they kill their own child and it causes huge psychological damage. I've got other stats I'm not going to take time to go through, but the mental health issues among women that have had abortion are two and 300 times as bad for women who have had abortions as women who haven't had abortions. On and on, suicide rate goes up dramatically. It is a destructive lifestyle, not only to the child, but to the woman and to families and to society. And once you begin to start moving this bar over here and saying, this is a life and this isn't a life, 
and you start playing God and you kill people because they aren't important to you. Margaret Sanger's statement that they are of less importance to the rest of us who have to pay for this mistake. Well, once you adopt that mindset, you're going down the same road that Hitler went down. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's morally wrong. Just think of how many great inventions, medical doctors, poets, who knows, out of these 53 million babies that have been reported murdered, how many could have changed our life? Where would we be if we had the resources of 53 million more people? And worldwide, there's 45 million a year being murdered, and that's been going on since even before Roe versus Wade. If you were to take the billions of people and what they could have contributed, I guarantee you everything would be different. Brothers and sisters, this is wrong. Christians need to have a conviction. And you know what? Abortion isn't the only issue, but it's an important issue. I have people say, would you vote for a person who is pro-abortion? Well, it depends what the options are. I mean, I would vote for somebody who's pro-abortion or weak on abortion if the option is somebody who's just an out and out against God person. You have to pick the lesser of two evils. But I guarantee you, this is important to me. And if at all possible, I would not vote for a person who would support abortion. It's murder. And a Christian should make a stand. And somebody says, well, I just don't believe it. That's important. Well, what is important? If saving the life of a child isn't important, if you are hardened to where you could just kill a child because it's inconvenient, people might know that you're immoral. If you go ahead and show pregnancy, if that's not something that's worth sacrificing your pride over and humbling yourself, what is? I tell you, brothers and sisters, there's just no way to whitewash this stuff. It's wrong. And I don't say this because I hate people with abortion. Again, this Connie Weinskopf, she's a friend of mine. I'm helping her start a ministry. We've promoted her. We put out a DVD about her because she recognizes it's wrong. I'm not against people who've done it, but I am against people promoting it as if it's right. I'm against people calling sin good. If you want to call it sin and say, forgive me, I sinned. Well, man, I'll love you and I'll show you the love of God and tell you about how he can forgive you. But I am not going to agree with you that murder is right. I'm not going to agree with you that homosexuality is right. I'm not going to promote those things. Those things are destroying people's lives and they will destroy this nation unless the godly people rise up and take a stand. And I tell you, it's time that we rise up. Some people might say, they'll take away your 501c3 because of this. Well, first of all, I don't believe they will. We've got scripture to stand on. We've got precedent in this nation to stand on. I don't believe that's going to happen. But you know what? If they took away my 501c3, I'd take it away. I'm not going to compromise just because you can get a deduction on your taxes. I'll stand and believe the truth. There's some things more important. You know, England doesn't have a... Uh, 501c3. You don't get a tax deduction when you give and those people still give. I praise God that we've got it, but I'm not going to be held hostage by it. 
What if they put you in jail? Well, there's a lot of people in jail that need the gospel. Amen. I'll preach to them. I can't control what somebody else does, but I'm going to stand and speak the truth. And I'm sure that there, you know, I know that this is a select group. You've come out specifically to hear me. So you probably are more in my court than others, but I'm sure that even among this group, there's people who came here who thought, man, I wish you'd have stuck to preaching the word and not I'm that you don't like it, but this is the word I've shared the word with you. And whether you like it or not, I'm saying these things because it's the truth. And Christians need to stand up. Christians need to have an opinion. Let me just give one word of caution. Don't be like some of the groups that go and picket funerals and do terrible things and say, God hates you and you're an abomination. I'm not doing that. If you're a homosexual, if you have someone who is a homosexual that you know, I love them. I've proven it in my employees and in my students. I am not against a homosexual but I am against that lifestyle and I'll tell them so and I'll tell them you need to repent and if they'll repent, I'll help them through it and deal with it. But I am not going to promote and embrace and say that it's okay when it's not. It is not okay. From a biblical perspective, it's not okay. From a secular perspective, it's not okay. It's destructive. Abortion and homosexuality and I'm just telling you the truth. Galatians 4.16 says, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Some of you liked me before I got on this topic. (laughs) And I just quote to you, am I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Because I say the truth? You can go check out every statistic. If you get my book, I've I've got a reference for every single thing. Most of them came from the United States government's own statistics. Everything I've said is verifiable. And you know what? People just choose. They have a prejudice. There is a spirit of antichrist in this world and people are cowed into subjection because of it. I've had some of my employees actually say, well, this is a sign of the end time and it's the way it's going to be. We can't fight against it. You know, that may be so. And things may go and this nation may totally turn its back on God and may go into extinction. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I guarantee you, I'm not going to help it happen. I'm going to go down fighting. Amen. And maybe this is the way it is in the end times, but I'm not going to be a part of it. I'm not going to support it. And if it costs me my ministry, if it sends me to jail, if it costs me whatever. I was talking to James Dobson and he's had body parts cut and thrown on his door and blood thrown all over his door and terrible things and threatened to be killed. And did you know who he said his biggest opponents were? His board. Christians. They didn't want him to speak out. They didn't want him to take a stand for morality. Some of the biggest criticism that I'll get when we air all of this stuff on television is from Christians who think you got no business taking a stand on this. But you know what? It's still worth it just to speak the truth. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. God. Well, Father, we give you honor and we give you thanks 
Thank you for making things so crystal clear in your word. Thank you that we don't have to wonder about what would be the right thing to do. Thank you for the clarity. Thank you for the Holy Spirit giving us boldness. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who've received this. I pray that we will stand and in love make a difference. Just like those verses in Leviticus 19, that we will not hate our brother in our heart, but we will under any circumstances, regardless of the cost, stand and speak the truth and not suffer sin to go unchecked. Thank you that we are the light of the world and that we are going to shine this light in the darkness. Thank you that we are the salt of the earth and we are going to preserve this corruption, this ungodliness that's creeping into our society. Father, we just make a commitment that we want to stand on your word and stand for righteousness and stand for truth. And Father, we thank you. We pray for our nation right now. Father, I know that Massachusetts here is has given recognition to same-sex marriage. And it says that sin is a reproach to any people, but righteousness exalts a nation. Father, we pray for mercy on this government, on this state. We pray that the truth, somebody speaking these things that I've talked about tonight would come to the ears of those who are in leadership and that they would hear it and that they would acknowledge it and they would quit being bullied and intimidated by the ungodly agenda and that they would take a stand for truth. Father, we just pray that you raise up people. I pray that people right here in this room who have influence, if it's just over their family, in their church, in their friends, in their workplace, but if they have influence in a large scale, I pray that people would stand and speak the truth in love and show their compassion and show that they love homosexuals. They love people who committed abortion, that they want to tell them the truth. They want to stop the hurt and the pain and this destruction that comes into people's lives. Father, I thank you for giving people boldness to speak the truth, that they would stand up and speak the truth. And Father, we thank you for that. I just believe that there's a backbone growing in people right now that they'll stand and speak the truth regardless of what it costs them. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we agree and we receive that. And thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let me say one last thing that really, really helped me and it gave me a lot of boldness. I used to really be worried when I would speak something like this about whether a person would reject it or not. And I didn't want to hurt them and I didn't want to offend them and I didn't want to shut the door. And so I was like walking on eggshells, fearful to say the truth. And the Lord spoke this to me and he says, what right do you have to reject the truth for those people? And I said, what do you mean? He says, if you think that they may not receive it, so you don't tell them, then you rejected this truth for them. You didn't even give them the privilege of rejecting it on their own. And he says, you do not have the right to reject the truth for other people. He says, you tell people the truth and give them the privilege of accepting or rejecting on their own. But you should not reject truth for other people. 
And I have come to realize that you'll be shocked if you go to telling people the truth. And if you do it in a spirit of love, you will be shocked at the number of people that will will honor you and respect you for standing up and saying the truth. It'll be different than what you think. Man, we need people to do that today. So praise God. I believe this is going to make a difference. I believe it's going to help you. Again, I encourage you to get that book because it'll arm you with some of these statistics and it'll help show you some things. And we need to counter the ungodliness of this world. Again, I want to give you an opportunity. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never been born again, maybe tonight you just realize that you've been playing church and that you know what? You don't have a real commitment to the Lord. And you want to be born again and you want to receive this salvation. Maybe you have lived a homosexual lifestyle. Maybe you have had abortions. Maybe you've done other things. But I've presented it tonight that God loves you. He's not mad at you. God hates divorce, not because he hates divorcees. He knows what divorce does to people. He loves you and he's got a better plan for you. If you've done some of these things, but if you want to repent and receive this salvation, we would love to pray with you and help you to receive Jesus as your Savior. And also, if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit in speaking tongues, you need that. Every born-again person should have the Holy Spirit. This is not for a select few. This is for every person in the body of Christ. And so if you don't have this baptism of the Holy Spirit in speaking tongues... We would like to share with you. We've now had how many people? 120, 30, 132 people received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and about six or so received salvation. But if you haven't received one of these two things yet, we would like to pray with you. Is there anybody here who would raise your hand and say, that's me, I want to receive. If that's you, raise your hand. Man, there's a bunch of hands here. You know, if you raised your hand or are supposed to and didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward? We want to pray with you right here and help you to receive. Just come forward right now and let us pray with you and help you to receive right here. Praise the Lord. Awesome. You know, there was only 120 people on the day of Pentecost that received the Holy Spirit in the first outpouring. And then before the day was over, there was 3,000. And then in a couple of weeks, there was 5,000. And now it's worldwide. And there are hundreds of millions of people that have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we've now had more people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit than that first outpouring on the day of Pentecost. Man, think of what this will do if all of you go out here and start sharing your faith and flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. This could change Massachusetts or New York or Connecticut or New Jersey or wherever you're from. Amen. It'd make a difference. Amen. Amen. You know, again, for those of you who are leaving, it seems like, you know, this group, you leave quickly. That's okay. I'm not upset, but... For those of you who are leaving, we've got CDs and DVDs of this entire series, five sets out there. And you know what? You need to get this teaching so that you can get these facts. You need to get this book. You need to share this with somebody. And I know that I'm not the most tactful person. A lot of people tell me that they turn me off because I'm so boring and so bland and stuff like this. But once they listen to the content, they like the content. But uh, I did present these things in love tonight more. Some people may not perceive it that way, but I did. And there may be some people who've been turned off to those who just hate them and tell them that God's going to send them to hell. And you might be able to share this truth with them. 
and this might get through to somebody. So you ought to get these things and have them available so that you can share these truths with other people. Praise the Lord. Amen. Isn't this great? I believe God's going to change your life. Thank you, Jesus. Man, God's waited for this night for a very long time. He's wanted to move in your life. Before you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you first of all have to make Jesus your personal Savior. If there's anybody here who's not born again, that's a prerequisite. The Bible says Jesus is the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. So you have to receive Jesus before you receive His gift. Is there anybody up here who's not absolutely certain about whether you've received Jesus as your Savior and you've been born again? Anybody? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I need to pray with you first. Amen. Praise God. I'll pray with you, brother. Are these ladies ready to receive? (laughs) Amen. How old are you girls? Seven and six. You know, I was eight when I got born again and I got saved. Man, I got saved big time. I believe you're old enough and I believe you're making Jesus your Lord. Isn't that good? What I'm going to do, I'm going to lead these three in prayer. And I'm going to say a prayer similar to what you need to say. You don't have to say these exact words, but you got to believe it. It's not magic. It's not just repeating the words and it automatically works. But if you will say what I'm going to say, it's based on Romans 10, 9, and believe it in your heart, then you'll be born again is what the Bible says. It says in Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what the Bible says. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer similar to that. And if you will say this and mean it, I believe you're going to be changed. Isn't that awesome? Forgiven of everything you've ever done. Praise God. I'd like to ask everybody who's still here to pray this with me so that they won't feel like we're just listening to them. Okay? Let's everybody say this. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you are alive. And that you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven. Right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do you believe that? You believe that? Welcome to the family, brother. You just got changed on the inside. You girls just got changed. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. Hallelujah. Man, isn't that awesome? You know what? This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. And now every person up here has prayed a similar type of thing and made Jesus your Lord. And according to the Bible, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, this young man right here, he's still a male. He's still a man. On the outside, he looks the same. But inside, you just became a temple, a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Same with these girls. The significance of that is, is that this is what God created all of us for. When you got born again, he made you the temple of the Holy Spirit. He wants to give you his Holy Spirit. So you don't have to beg him. You don't have to plead. Some people teach that you can't have any sin in your life. 
You got to be totally holy to receive the Holy Spirit. If you could get holy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. If you got sin in your life, bad attitudes, problems, you are a prime candidate for the Holy Spirit. He wants to come in and give you power. So don't let any sense of unworthiness or something make you feel that God won't give you the Holy Spirit. God wants to give you His power. He wants to flow in your life. Isn't that good? So we aren't going to beg. We're just going to open up the doors of this temple and welcome the Holy Spirit to come into our life. And the moment you do that, he won't force himself on you. But if you give him half of a chance and if you welcome him into your life, he's coming. Luke eleven thirteen says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's a promise. So we're going to ask and the Holy Spirit's going to come. So I'm going to lead you in a real simple prayer. And then I want our prayer ministers to come up here and they're going to stand behind you and they're going to lay hands on you because the Bible says that when the apostles laid hands on people that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues. So these people already have the Holy Spirit living in the inside of them and they are going to lay hands on you and release this power into you. And after they lay hands on you, after we've prayed this prayer and then after they lay hands on you, I want you to start thanking God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Regardless of what you feel like, just believe the promises of God and thank Him that He did give you the Holy Spirit. And then those who have the Holy Spirit already are going to start praying in tongues. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, 17, that when you pray in an unknown tongue, you are giving thanks unto God. You don't know what you're saying, but the Bible tells you that's what you're doing. You're praising God. You're giving praise to Him in a heavenly language. So we are going to start praying in tongues and thanking God. And at that time, when we start praying in tongues, I want you to switch from thanking Him in English for the Holy Spirit and just start praying in tongues with us and thanking Him. The last piece of information I'll give you, I've got a book that will give you a lot more information. It'll explain everything to you so that you'll completely understand this. But the last information I'll give you is that most people think that the Holy Spirit's going to force you to speak in tongues. He will just take control of you and force you to speak. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance, Acts 2, 4. So you have to speak. It's like when I preach tonight, I believe God spoke through me, but He didn't force me to say what I said. I had to say it. It came out in my accent, my Texas accent. But you know what? I believe it was inspired of God. And it's the same when you speak in tongues. You speak and by faith believe that the Holy Spirit is giving you that utterance. And once you get over the weirdness of it, the strangeness of it, and quit listening to yourself, you'll find that it just flows out of you. And it really is inspired of God and it's powerful. And this book will explain it. But that's what we're going to do. Y'all ready? I want you to say this. The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. I thank you for these two girls, for this man who got born again. And for every one of us, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You created us to fill with your Holy Spirit. You want us to have this power. You gave us a command to have it. So right now, we yield to that. We open up the doors of our heart to our temple and say, Holy Spirit, come and live in us. Come and fill us with your power. Give us this gift 
of speaking in tongues and all of the other gifts start flowing through us and give us power. We want it right now in the name of Jesus. We lay hands on you in Jesus' name and we release this power of the Holy Spirit. We say to you, receive the Holy Spirit right now. Holy Spirit, come and indwell. Flow through every one of us right now in Jesus' mighty name. Praise God. Now I want you to begin to thank God out loud that He gave you the Holy Spirit just like He promised He would. Start thanking Him. Let's put your hands up in the air like this. The Bible says when you lift up your hands, you bless the Lord. This blesses God. It's like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I I yield. I surrender. Father, we thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word is true and that every single person here is being filled with the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. Now, those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's just begin to worship the Lord and speak in tongues. And as we speak in tongues, those of you that came to receive, start speaking with us. Just start speaking. You can't talk in tongues with your mouth closed. You got to open your mouth. You've got to make some noises. You got to make a sound. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear the person behind you saying. But your tongue's going to be different. It'll be unique to you. You can't just say verbatim what they're saying, but it'll get you to talking. And once you start talking, don't quit. Just keep talking. Just speak out right now. You girls can speak in tongues right now. Let's just talk in a language that you don't understand. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you for filling all of these with the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Let me have your attention here for just a moment. You know, whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe God gave every one of you the Holy Spirit because He promised that He would. When I first prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, I didn't do it. It took me three and a half years to speak in tongues, but that's because I was a Baptist. And I had been told that this was of the devil. And I had so many fears and worries that I just wouldn't do it. I was afraid. And it took a long time to get this doctrine out on me and stuff. But I've written all of my problems and the answers that I found in Scripture in a book. And this book will explain this. And if any of you had any trouble speaking in tongues, I promise you, you can read this book. And you can uh, go ahead and release it and speak in tongues. But when you asked, God gave you the Holy Spirit. It's like a pair of tennis shoes when you get them. They all come with tongues, amen. And you receive the baptism and you have the gift of tongues. You just have to learn how to flow with it. And uh, this could be the biggest thing that has happened to you since you got born again. This is huge, but you've got to understand it to get the full benefit of it. So I would like to give you a book and we've got Robert right here. He's got his Bible up in the air and he's gonna take you to a room where they'll give you a free book There's also people that will pray with you, answer any questions that you've got. If you need prayer, they'll pray with you or whatever. So if you would, just follow Robert. It'll only take a moment, and we want to give you this free book. Let's praise God for all of these. Amen. Isn't this awesome? 
testimonies. These prayer ministers have been praying with people. We've seen people miraculously healed, people with lung problems running around the room. We've seen a lot of great things happen. And you know what? If you're here tonight and need a miracle, I want to invite you to come forward and let one of our prayer ministers pray with you. Amen. If anybody has anything that you need prayer for, maybe you need prayer to grow a backbone and stand up and speak. You know, you can pray for boldness. Paul said, pray for me that I might be bold and speak forth this mystery as I ought to speak. You can come and get prayer. So if you would like prayer, come and let someone agree with you right now. Amen. Let them pray with you. The rest of you, I'm going to ask you that tonight we're going to stay here and these prayer ministers will be here to pray for people. But the reason we started early tonight is because it takes... I don't know, three or four hours for my staff to tear down everything, to pack it up, load up our semi and get ready. And so uh, we start early so they can get to bed before three o'clock. So for the rest of you, we're glad that you came. I pray that you get the materials and stuff. Thanks for coming, but now leave so we can get out of here. Amen. So if you need prayer, feel free to come and get prayer. But if you're If you don't want prayer, thanks for coming. God bless you. Now leave. You're a blessing. Thanks. God bless you all.